This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Premi Mohammed is one of the most original and engaging voices in speculative fiction today. And with dual scientific degrees in molecular genetics and land reclamation, she's well qualified. Premi's writing, like her academic studies, is not constrained by genre boundaries. Her latest novella, The Annual Migration of Clouds, combines elements of sci-fi, cosmic horror and dystopian fiction to explore the possible consequences of our present-day actions. It's set on the campus of the University of Alberta, decades after climate disruption has destroyed society and much of humanity has been infected by a parasitic, mind-controlling fungus known as CAD. Before Premi joins us, let's meet her protagonist, Reed, who's been offered a rare chance to join the last remnants of pre-disaster society but feels held back not just by her loyalty to her own community, but also by the parasite within her. We live in the Biological Sciences Centre. A strange affair, as I know from my reading, but what were people supposed to do? No one seemed to have accurately imagined, let alone zoned neighbourhoods for a human existence in which no one in the world could survive unless it were close to a river in a sturdy building. And the university still had those when Grandma's generation was forced to find refuge. And so here we are today. It's not a disaster if you still have a roof, Mom always says. It's not a tragedy. Not if the wolf gets to the last piggy's house and finds he can't blow it down. Long ago, pillaged and sacked, our castle of brown brick and cream trim still stands. Snooty. Even snotty above the ruins of newer buildings. Ugly, really, over a hundred years old and wonkily coyote-shaped on the map, but proud of its ugliness, filled with hundreds of offices and labs that slowly became occupied as the world shook itself apart. Home sweet home. Mom and I are on the 11th floor, zoology. Henrik on the 8th, genetics. Grubby stairwells, concrete and brick. Everything smeared with the passing touch of thousands of people, redolent of unwashed bodies and the outside dust that gets into everything. But redolent also of things that refuse to fade, of books, chemicals, specimens, ink, age, dignity, maybe. The persistence of the smell suggests that we are participating in, rather than merely witnessing, the aftermath of some proud and even noble long unbroken chain of knowledge and study. But the truth is, of course, that the chain did break. And not once, but again, and again, and again. Eva Tavares, narrating The Annual Migration of Clouds, written by Premi Mohammed who joins me from her home in Edmonton, Alberta. Preemi, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you for inviting me. Delighted to be here. We've just heard Reed describe her living conditions, and hers is a post-climate catastrophe world. On one level, this is a climate fiction or cli-fi story, and you use your scientific background to make it all too plausible. I get a sense from the urgency and and, and actually some of the anger in the book that you feel we're halfway there already. Can you describe the climate change that has been wrought upon this near future world? Oh, yeah, good question. So my, my job, I'm actually an environmental regulator in, I guess, what we're going to have to call a, a petrostate Um As listeners may or may not be aware, uh, the province in Canada that I live in has built most of its history and wealth uh, on petroleum hydrocarbons and petroleum products. And um, they have fairly 
strong opinions about human-caused climate change. So I wasn't deliberately trying to push back against that, but as a regulator, it's something I think about a lot is how are we trying to steward the environment for the next generation and how good of a job are we doing and whose interests are we putting first? And that last one is something that in the book, Reed kind of can't really know because, you know, with the collapse of, you know, technologized civilization, um, she's never lived in a world where corporations are kind of trying to run the show. But to me, it felt like a, a scientific question to answer as well as somewhat a moral question to answer. And I look at the modeling data so much at work and we do have a really good idea about what's going to happen in Alberta in the next sort of 20 to 50, 70 years uh, in regards to climate change, in regards to mega disasters on a local scale, on a global scale, um, various air currents and ocean currents uh, shutting down or redirecting, um, changes to precipitation, changes to stream flows, rivers, uh, glaciers, wildfire regimes, uh, vegetation, wildlife. So I didn't want to, you know, write a, a preachy or a messagey book, but I did want it to be accurate, if I could, as to kind of what pointed the characters and their setting in that direction and why we're sort of nudging the arrow there now. Reed and her community have been reduced to a subsistence existence. Mm -hmm. And from the few books that still survive, she's gleaning knowledge which actually makes her realise that our generation and the generation that will come after us knew what was happening mm -hmm. and didn't do anything to stop it. And, and th there's a, a horror there at this knowledge and a, an inability to understand her ancestors. Yeah, um, I, I really, you know, people have asked me about that too and they were like, oh, well, you know, she, she seems very angry about that rather than kind of sad or grieving the past. And I'm thinking, oh, anger is a lot of what I see though right now. You know, Generation Z kind of already going, you're doing this to us on purpose. This is the decision that you're making to make things deliberately less good for everyone who comes after you. Why are you doing this? There's just this, this enormous anger and frustration. Uh, to me, it felt, it felt kind of intuitive for Reed to feel that way because she knows that, that little bit about the past, yeah. And yet the book is very different to the post-nuclear apocalyptic novels of the 1950s through to the 1980s or 90s. It emphasises the community mentality rather than the bunker mentality that a lot of those John Wyndham-type books had. And the emphasis is on rebuilding the community. Yeah, and um, thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, that, that was definitely a deliberate choice. Um, even in a lot of books written more recently, I'm, I'm still seeing kind of that bunker mentality, post-disaster kind of um, every person for themselves. Uh, they haven't reached the dystopia yet. They're still at the post-apocalyptic stage, but it's very much hoarding of resources, um, hoarding of, of fertile women. Um, you know, the big man makes the rules. We have all the weapons. Uh, if you run across a stranger, the best thing to do is probably rob him, maybe eat him. Uh, you know, your, your choices are pretty few. <laughs> And I don't think I'm being Pollyanna-ish to think that that wouldn't happen after a series of huge climate disasters. But I think my faith is in the belief that that won't last forever, that there may be a period where people bunker down out of selfishness and shock and fear until they realize that everyone will be safer and better together. And that was part also, I think, of deliberately responding to the disease in the story, to CAD, um, because then you've got a community of people who know that because it lies latent for so long, it could strike you at any time, 
And the only way to survive that is if you have a community around you that understands that, that will still look after you if you can't work, that is, is absolutely guaranteed to not leave you. Uh, and so you've kind of got no incentive to leave the community either. It's, um, you know, these aren't people that are trying to get out of their comfort zone. These are people that are trying to create a comfort zone, maybe for the first time in their lives. And that choice is something that is starkly confronting Reed when she is offered a place at one of the few remaining institutions from the pre-apocalyptic age. And there is a suggestion that actually the the dystopia might lie with the elites who are still living a relatively pre-apocalyptic life under the domes, far away from Reed's community. And that sharpens her dilemma. She's, she's needed in the community. They need every body they can have to gather food and water. And yet she is offered this glittering prize where she might be able to do something to improve the lot of communities like hers, perhaps find a cure for CAD, perhaps find technologies that will help them lead an easier or better life. Yeah, and that that is a really big dilemma to her. And partly it's so much the curiosity, the the unknown. Um, She's never been to this place. She doesn't know anyone that has been to this place. Um, so there's this combined sense of kind of, you know, oh, I wonder what it's like, and oh, I've been chosen. You know, it's a, it's a chosen one narrative where the chosen one is extremely nervous about this, and you know, the the fight against wanting to stay with her only family and friends, wanting to help rebuild her community, and the draw of of wanting also to go somewhere else uh, to have adventures maybe to better herself. Uh, I think a lot of that may have been kind of the, uh, you know, the, the child of immigrants in me speaking as well, because while there is very much an expectation for all of us, you know, in my, in my family in particular, to go to school, uh, to better ourselves, to get good, stable jobs, to support our families and communities, um, there is also this expectation that to do so, you don't leave. Like, you stay put, you stay as close as you can, and and you're always accessible and available, you know, to perform family duties, uh, whatever's asked of you. So Reed is definitely feeling pulled two ways about this. And as, as you mentioned, part of that is, oh, you know, they are the elites. These are like the people that caused this whole thing to happen. I... I wonder what they're like. I wonder what their purpose is in in choosing people from outside their community to come study with them. I wonder if they're real. I wonder if it's a scam, you know? <laughs> and Reed's decision is not just complicated for the reasons that you've just outlined, but she can't even trust her own judgment because she has this sentient parasitic fungus growing inside her called cad where did the idea of that come from oh my gosh (laughs) yeah uh the idea for cad um sorry i'm so excited about it um actually came from uh a tweet that i saw that was talking about a paper a preprint i think actually i don't even think it was a paper yet um and i only read a couple of words in the title but it was about a heritable symbiont and i thought that is the most interesting combination of words I can think of. Uh, and I immediately rushed off and was like, how would this work? How can I create one? What, what traits of this disease would be interesting? How can I write a story about this? And I, I did get to thinking also about, you know, the infections that we can have or parasites that we can have or even our, our gut microbiomes, our skin microbiomes, you know, that produce neurotransmitters like serotonin and and dopamine and adrenaline that are not biologically different than the ones our bodies are producing. So I'm sitting here, you know, do I know if that little spurt of happiness I felt was from my mind, you know, my brain, 
Or was it from the bacteria living in my lower intestine? Because my brain can't tell the difference. So it, it kind of became a way to explore, um, you know, kind of free will, but also aside from free will, how we make decisions, what we base those on, what information is coming into us and how we can evaluate that information. You know, the, the fungus is probably semi sentient, but what kind of sensorium is it receiving from Reed? It can't see, it can't smell, it can't taste. It's receiving something from her though, and that's how it makes its risk assessments. So initially when I was writing the story, what I wanted to do was explore the disease. It didn't occur to me that I could explore the disease more thoroughly in a different setting than right now until I was like 10,000 words in and I kind of went back and scrapped everything and, and started over. <laughs> The disease has been allowed to run rampant, partly as a result of a ban on abortion and birth control. And so the scientists of the past have not been able to nip it in the bud, and it is spread through communities. Yeah, uh, I had to think uh, particularly about how parasites and how the heredity uh, would work for this. It's clear that it's not fully understood, at least in, in Reed's community, because, um, you know, it's kind of a, a feedback cycle, almost like what's happening with COVID, sort of, you know, the pandemic makes every large disaster harder to deal with, um, you know, with climate change, um, and climate change also makes the epidemic harder to deal with. So they, they feed back off each other, they steal resources that would be needed to fight the other. So I think my thinking was that the really big climate disasters and global economic disasters and sociological disasters and the shutdowns of shipping and electricity and fossil fuels and everything kind of happened at exactly the wrong time <laughs> to be able to really get to the bottom of CAD and, and cure it. And so there had to be this, this long latency period where you couldn't tell if you had it or not, but unfortunately it does keep getting passed on because people don't have control over their reproductive options anymore in, in large parts of the world. So it just, it spreads and spreads and spreads. Was this a book that you were writing during the pandemic? Or was this an idea that you'd had beforehand that got sharpened by the pandemic? No, this was written in summer of 2019. I actually, you know, I just kind of threw it at my agent and was like, you know, here you go. I'm <laughs> I'm off on holiday pretty much like the day before my flight left, I think. And um, that flight actually was to um, the World Fantasy Association conference in Dublin, so Worldcon. And while I was there, an editor and I connected and she asked if she could take a look at the manuscript. So we ended up doing the final paperwork on it in kind of December 2019, January 2020. So uh, it's surprisingly a, a pre-pandemic book, and I had absolutely no idea that when we scheduled it for September 2021, it would be published into a global pandemic that was uh, kind of still ongoing. You know, in the early stages of it, I was like, well, it's just a coronavirus. All we have to do is isolate for maybe two, three infection cycles and it'll just burn out all over the world. Anyway, that didn't happen. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was, that was an unpleasant surprise, having a plague book come out during a plague. You know, one funny thing, when we were in edits, there's a section in the book where Reed is talking about some of the pandemics of the past. And originally it said something like, oh, I don't know, um, the flu, Zika, Ebola. And then in copy edits, uh, a couple of months before the book came out, the copy editor was like, would you like to add COVID to the list of pandemics? And I was like, I kind of would not. <laughs> but let's add it anyway, because it'll be strange if she doesn't know about it. <laughs> yeah, you've got to name check the biggest pandemic we've had. You really do. For a long yeah. Time. So I was like, well, I'm, I personally feel resentful towards COVID, but uh, let's put it in there anyway. And let's assume that 70 years from now, it's honestly actually over. <laughs> Now, I never give spoilers on this show, but there is a bit of unresolved business at the end of the annual migration of clouds. And m many of us know you as a writer of series. 
Is this a standalone book or can we expect more from Reed? Oh, uh, without getting too many spoilers away, it was written as a standalone. And I wanted to kind of let readers picture whatever happened to Reed uh, and Henrik and the family and whatnot next. But um, a couple of months ago, uh, two sequels were announced. So there will be more adventures uh, coming in fall 2023 and 2024. Well, I can't wait. And after the break, we will talk about your trilogy beneath the rising. Sounds good. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with speculative sci-fi, cli-fi and fantasy writer Premi Mohammed. Premi, now I want to discuss your trilogy Beneath the Rising, which is another genre-mashing slice of scientific fantasy fiction set in an alternative 2002 where a child prodigy called... Joanna Johnny Chambers is seeming to solve all the world's problems until she invents a clean reactor that releases some very dark power. Could you take us further into the plot of the book? Yeah. Um, well, you know, initially we had some trouble, my agent and I had some trouble placing this because uh, editors would come back and be like, well, we love it, but it's sci-fi, fantasy, horror and alternative history, we don't know where to put it on the shelves. And, you know, my response was like, I feel very much like that's a you problem, not an us problem. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much where it is. Um, this is a world where uh, it's like our world, uh, but slightly different. And Johnny Chambers and her lifelong best friend, Nick Prasad, are reuniting after uh, Johnny has been away for quite some time. And, you know, he's pretty excited to renew their old friendship. But Everything's a little unsettled because Johnny has just invented something that looks like it's going to change the world in a good way. And neither of them has any idea that it's about to change the world in a very bad way and attract the attention of some ancient malevolent beings with some boundary issues who are about to uh, show up and do what they will with the Earth as they've always wanted to do. And it's got a wonderful globe-trotting plot that takes you to some ancient civilizations. It's packed with conspiracy theories and secret societies and, and ancient gods. There's a real sense of sort of Indiana Jones meets Neil Gaiman meets the Da Vinci Code. You must have had great fun writing this. I did, yeah. I was writing this during my undergrad, uh, my first degree. And um, so it was kind of funny, you know, at the time I was finishing the book in about 2002. And uh, when I started it, I was about Nick's age. I was about 18. So when people were reading it later and they were like, you know, this seems very authentic. I remember using Netscape Navigator. I'm like, thank you. I also remember using Netscape Navigator. That's what we were using at the time. I remember cargo pants. I remember those Gap commercials. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it was a blast writing it. And I did kind of want that sort of Indiana Jones adventure slash X-Files slash, I don't know, like Treasure Island something. They're, they're chasing after something that they already know is trouble, but there's no way to turn their back on it at any point, because if they don't do something, who will? And the, the research for that was so fun too, particularly back then, because um, that was internet. The internet wasn't great. <laughs> uh, it was a lot of time spent just kind of goofing off in the library and deciding where I wanted them to go next and reading books called things like Great Mysteries of the Past or Unsolved Conspiracies and uh, Bizarre Artifacts 1959, that kind of thing. Uh, it was a lot of fun, yeah. Well, it kept having me sort of 
pressing pause on the book and quickly typing things into Google to sort of look up the history of Nineveh or, you know, other cities that had been destroyed seemingly at the will of the gods hundreds or thousands of years ago. And yet it's also packed full of contemporary cultural references as well. Nick and Johnny riff off each other with their shared love of television shows and films. And it's very funny in places. The the relationship between them is like that of a long-married couple who never sleep with each other. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that was very much based, I guess, on how I interacted with all my friends, particularly my, my longtime best friend. We've been best friends since I was about 11. We're always talking to each other in TV quotes and movie quotes. And, you know, when I was writing it, I was like, well, this is how friends talk. And I always found it slightly weird in books where characters are supposed to have been longtime friends, but they never reference their shared past. They claim to be friends, but they are just exchanging plot information. I really don't like that. That's really not how I wanted their relationship to be. I wanted the entire crisis of the plot in the book to hinge on the more minor crisis of what is happening in their lifelong friendship. And I tried to also kind of keep that for the sequels uh, because the big disaster is kind of the small disaster. It's, Mm. It's the same thing. They're not different. Well, also central to the plot are the inequalities in gender, race and class present between the two of them and the different opportunities that affords them. Johnny is white, but she's also female, which means that people don't necessarily take her as seriously as they should. But Nick is black and poor and doesn't have anything like the opportunities that Johnny has had. Yeah, and again, um, similar to Cloud's, I didn't want to smack people over the head with that, but I did want for there to be this tension between them and for Nick to really be a lot more cognizant of it than Johnny is, because in general, that's kind of how privilege works. Um, And in particular, what I wanted to reach into here was kind of also the difference that money makes and the way Nick finds himself thinking uh, like, yeah, I'm brown. I'm the child of immigrants. Would my life be, though, exactly like hers if I had the same amount of money as she did? Would that erase the differences? And so, you know, he's kind of scrambling to be a provider for his family. He's scrambling to provide financial stability. Uh, He picks up extra shifts at work. He's trying to work around school. So money is, is very, very much on his mind. And I think it bothers him a lot more than the other differences between them, which he seems to kind of regard as as less important, except when he's trying to figure out whether or not he's in romantic love with Johnny, because honestly, he's kind of not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, one of the tensions that runs throughout the book. As you say, he is far more self-aware than Johnny is. She is a, a child prodigy, but... That's something we're far more used to seeing in male characters in books, the the nerdy kid who communicates through their gift rather than through their personality. Was it important for you to, to flip that stereotype on its head and make Johnny female, even though you gave her a male name? Yeah, yeah, that was important to me. And and I guess, actually, initially I wasn't doing this on purpose, but a lot of my fiction does contain women with uh, kind of gender-neutral names or with traditionally coded masculine names. And it only recently occurred to me, that's really a thing here in Alberta, where I live. Yeah, it was important to me that the, the prodigy be seen by the scientific community as something sort of frivolous. Like, oh, well, look at this little girl in her little dress and her little Mary Janes in the lab. But, you know, at the same time, oh, she's in her fancy dress and her little Mary Janes because she's doing a Time magazine photo shoot because she's discovered the cure for AIDS. Um, I like that kind of double take effect 
of a character being not what the establishment expects them to be. And so I also enjoy, as you say, um, writing Nick like that, as someone who's seen by the establishment as, you know, oh, he's a boy, you know, he's probably kind of scrungy looking as teenagers often are, um, he's brown, uh, you know, he's tall, he looks like he might be a threat, he looks like he might be a high school dropout or some kind of troublemaker or delinquent or something, but Nick is very self-aware. He, he watches the world very closely, not just because I think he has severe anxiety and he thinks <laughs> the world is a threat, but also because that kind of narrator can be really interesting too. Like we look at Moby Dick and what a terrible, terrible book that would be if Ahab was the first person narrator. He's the main character, but you need the distance of Ishmael narrating or else the story is not going to make any sense because like Johnny, Ahab is looking at the world through a pinhole poked in a piece of cardboard. You know, he's just so focused he can't see the larger picture except as how it affects him and, and his quest for the whale, you know? Absolutely. And Nick is constantly searching for answers in, in a very different way to Johnny. Mm -hmm. he, he, he needs to understand the situation. She just needs to solve the problem. Yeah, and I really liked that too. Um, as Nick starts getting answers and starts getting answers from her, you can sort of hear the penny drop like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why do you already have the answer to this? This is an extremely suspicious thing for you to have the answer to. So there does come a point in the book where it's, a, it's revealed, you know, well, you were probably right to be suspicious the entire time. And then they have to grapple with that for the next two books, that withholding of information, um, telling the truth accidentally, uh, lying by omission. It's, they're very much books about lies and trust and truth. <laughs> Yes, and in books two and three, A Broken Darkness and The Void Ascendant, you certainly ramp it up. I was wondering how you were going to follow up Saving the World in part one. But yeah, you just decide that Johnny and Nick have to save the universe and then the whole of existence. The whole of existence, yeah. Um, it was kind of funny the way the third book happened as well. I mean... When the first book sold, it sold in a two-book deal. And uh, my agent was like, well, you know, that's that's quite normal. So I uh, wrote the sequel. Um, I made sure to tie up as many threads as I could at the end and shut as many doors as I could. And, you know, kind of dusted my hands off, you know, like, oh, good job, patted myself on the back. And then a few months before the second book was due out, we got an email from my editor asking, so what do we think of the title for the third book? And I was like, the what? So um, af after some negotiation, <laughs> I had to figure out how to make the end of the duology the middle of a trilogy when that hadn't been what I intended when I wrote either the first book or the second book. <laughs> I don't know if I succeeded, but... Um... Oh, I think it is. <laughs> it was not easy. <laughs> you are phenomenally productive. You have written another novella. These Lifeless Things, which is another chilling view of a speculative future, and has, I felt, very much a cosmic horror feel yeah. to it. I wondered if it was slightly indebted to The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. The nature starts feeling very threatening in These Lifeless Things. Oh my God, it absolutely was. And thank you for bringing up that novella. I had three novellas published last year, and, you know, you can kind of picture me putting my hand over the ears of the other two. But that one secretly was my favorite. It was very much cosmic horror. It was indebted to The Willows, which is just an unbelievably creepy story, considering that you don't really get a good look at the antagonist. You just kind of get to see the action through what The Willows are doing, uh, which I loved. And also an older Lovecraft story whose title I don't remember now, but one minor kind of thing in the story is that the speaker feels a pull from the stars. And I was just enamored of that idea. Like, oh, there's a bad star up there. 
and it's causing effects to, you know, ancient hidden things that are starting to wake up and unhide themselves and carry out their agenda, whatever their agenda is. And we can't understand them. We don't know what they're doing. We don't know how to, how to placate them or, or appease them or get rid of them. Uh, all we can do is cope. And then I really enjoyed contrasting that kind of desperately confused survival situation with the high-tech, very educated little group that comes back to study the city on a research trip 50 years later. And you mention Lovecraft, who, who's a divisive character, but was phenomenally imaginative in amongst some of his bigotry, and Algernon Blackwood as well, uh, who, who's a less troublesome character. Like them, you've also been tempted to write ghost stories. I'm thinking of The Apple Tree Throne, which is a, an alternative history of England and, and very spooky. Yeah, that was a fun one. I had never really tried to write a ghost story before. And you know, honestly, I wish I had read more uh, M.R. James before that, because mm. honestly, they have no reason, none, to be as scary as they are. <laughs> they are the scariest things. Um, I, I don't think I was aiming for something quite so terrifying, but I did like the idea of having a ghost where the ghost isn't sure why it's a ghost, but is self-aware enough to know that it's dead, that it can't come back, that it can interact with the living in a way, and it's got some choices to make as to how it does that. Does it want to be a negative presence? Does it want to be a friend? Does it have unfinished business to tie up? Is it angry about how it died or why? So that was kind of what I was exploring there. And it was also something I wrote for myself for fun, uh, based on a song by my favorite band. And I just wanted to see if it was possible to do that without directly invoking any of the lyrics or getting sued. Or summoning up any ghosts. Or summoning up any ghosts. <laughs> Have you got plans for any more ghost stories? Uh, not at the moment. Um, what I'm mostly working on right now is the sequels to Clouds. But uh, there's some more... Wow, I have to be very, very vague about this. There's some kind of unusual sci-fi in the works as well. Um, some kind of almost contemporary or very near future sci-fi and another kind of cosmic folk horror novel as well. I have to ask, because I know that you've already mentioned what you do as a day job and you have worked in research and genetics as well. Where do you find the time, Primi? Uh, I'm very, very tired. I don't sleep a lot. <laughs> no, I can't. Um, I guess I, I just, and I know I'm very lucky to be in this situation, but I just shuffle a lot else off my plate uh, for as long as I can manage it. Um, I live alone. I just have kind of myself to look after in terms of time. And uh, basically, it's just trying to scrape out long enough blocks of time to do the writing and the research and the promo and answering emails and things like that. So I basically go to work, uh, come home, eat supper and kind of log in to job number two. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're very lucky to have you for an hour now. And after the break, I'm going to come on to ask you about the audiobook versions of your books. Oh, lovely. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sale. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to this episode of My Life in Books with Primi Mohammed. Primi, as we heard at the top of the show, the annual migration of clouds has been made into a wonderful audiobook by Eva Tavares. And I know the story we were talking about just now, The Apple Tree Throne, which was, I think, the first story that you published. You were insistent that that should not just be an ebook, but also an audiobook. Clearly, you're deeply committed to books being available to everybody. Yeah, I think audiobooks are just absolutely fantastic. And what the narrator 
can add to an audiobook, I think also is something that people who don't listen to a lot of audiobooks don't really appreciate until they can kind of hear it for themselves. But I just think that audiobooks are such a good addition to a book. And um, in particular regards to the Apple Tree Throne, which I asked my agent for permission to self-publish while we were kind of in that hiatus between got a book deal and book is out for Beneath the Rising, and he gave me his permission. Um, Skyboat Books actually approached us and said that they would be able to do an audiobook for it, and I was just delighted. I think they did a wonderful job, and I was very, very pleased that Beneath the Rising, you know, the series was also going to get audiobooks, and same with uh, The Annual Migration of Clouds, and I was delighted to be invited to participate in helping to choose the narrator for those. Um, I'm sad that uh, last year's Nebula award-winning novella, And What Can We Offer You Tonight, which was published by Neon Hemlock Press, does not have an audio version, but they don't do audio versions, unfortunately, due to the size of the press. And so I hope that one day uh, we can sell audio rights for And What Can We Offer You Tonight as well, because again, I'm proud of that one. Uh, I would like for for people everywhere to be able to access that book in a way that works for them. Well, fingers crossed somebody is listening and, um, hey, it's a novella. It's not going to take that long to narrate. It truly will not. And it's barely 21,000 words. It's it's half the length of the annual Migration of Clouds. Uh, if anyone is listening to this, call me. Thank you. <laughs> Eva Tavares does a wonderful job, as I say, but would you ever be tempted to narrate one of your books yourself? Oh, God, good question. Um, you know, I, tr- I truly do not know. Um, I don't mind uh, reading my own stuff. I like to do readings for cons and for, for charity streams and events and panels and things like that. Um, and I also am one of those people who doesn't mind the sound of her own voice. <laughs> I know a lot of my friends do. I guess my issue is that I I don't think I could do the text justice. I think a professional would be better. But if I if I write my autobiography or my memoirs or something, I would totally narrate it. <laughs> uh, well, we'll be waiting for that one too then, <laughs> when you can fit it in. <laughs> exactly. When, when I don't have deadlines breathing down my neck. Indeed. Uh, I'm glad to hear that you had something to do with selecting the narrators for the books. Omari Newton just occupies the part of Nick Crusade for the Beneath the Rising trilogy, doesn't he? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Um, So, you know, as as a new author, I wasn't sure how it worked. When you got an audiobook version produced, I wasn't sure what my role in it was supposed to be. So it was just really interesting to learn how the process worked. So in the case of those books, uh, my editor said that they, you know, they have kind of a a group of regular voice actors that they worked with. Um, They were going to see if they could find some people from that to kind of do, do the narration. So they sent me the portfolio links and some samples of the three narrators reading out the same passage from the book. And I was like, oh, well, these will probably all sound very similar. I was surprised that they didn't. I didn't think I would be able to kind of hear a difference. But I was like, oh, this this person kind of sounds too serious. This person kind of sounds too old. And then Amari Newton, I was like, oh, it's him. It's Nick. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds just like him. And same with Eva for the annual migration of clouds. Uh, three narrators, three samples. Uh, there was one person who was so close but sounded just weirdly very very american kind of so just just the wrong accent for canada and then another person who just sounded very very tired and jaded and i was like you know reed is 19 she's she's got to sound a little bit like she's got some juice left in her i don't know um and then again eva was the one i listened to last and i was like perfect just absolutely perfect she even does a different voice for the fungus Uh, and yeah, the other thing that I was asked to provide for both was um, providing pronunciation lists for the words that I had just made up, which for Beneath was kind of tricky because a lot of those names are just kind of keyboard smashes, and I hadn't even been pronouncing them in my head. 
so I kind of did the best I could. And I was like, yeah, just give her. I don't know. Have fun. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say Nick has to do accents for all over the world and from other worlds too. Other worlds so, too. Uh, you gave yeah. him quite a job. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hope he was compensated very, very handsomely for this. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I always like to look for common themes in authors' work, and I think I've noticed that you are slightly obsessed by libraries. I love a good library. I love uh, libraries. I love old books. I love cursed books. Uh, I love forbidden books. And every time I'm in the UK, my friends are like, do you want to go have a pint? And I'm like, I will meet you guys in about an hour. There's just this ancient haunted library down the street. I just have to go look. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I look forward to welcoming you to London and taking you to a very dusty bookshop. <gasps> My dream. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Well, after the break, I hope that you'll share some of the gems that you've picked up from secondhand bookshops or elsewhere with the books of your life. Absolutely catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Primi Mohammed. Primi, I know you're a book lover, so I guess I've asked you a very tough question just to narrow it down to three favourite books. But was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Uh, oh, definitely, definitely the first thing. Um, actually, I never did want to become an author when I was a kid. I just wanted to write. You know, I, I never thought or imagined about seeing a book with my name on it on a bookshelf. Um, I wanted to be a scientist. Uh, actually, I wanted to be an astronaut. And then they told me that you actually had to be able to like see without glasses to be an astronaut. I thought that was very unfair. You know, I thought it was okay if writing was a hobby. So I think uh, The Microbe Hunters by Paul de Kroof made me want to be a scientist, which I read when I was, I don't know, six or seven. I picked it up at a library book sale, so I only probably had like a dollar or two dollars. But... For fiction, um, I think absolutely the the Pridean Chronicles by Alexandra Lloyd, um, you know, the ones that start with The Black Cauldron. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved, loved those books. I took them out of the library so many times. I thought they were the most interesting things I'd ever read. Like, they just set my imagination on fire. I was like, what am I making up stories about, like, me and my brother and my friends for? Like, I could be making up stories like this. Uh, it turns out that they're based on um, Welsh mythology, but they basically start off with the chosen one who does not know he's the chosen one, uh, Taran, the, the pig keeper, who gets tangled up with the, the armies of the Death Lord who are marching through the land and who have this terrible, terrifying cauldron that you can put dead people into and they come back as this kind of zombie army and he runs into, you know, friends along the way and he makes friends with a princess and this kind of monkey dog thing and, and a friendly bard. And there's also a prophetic pig who can tell the future. And um, it's just very, very imaginative. It was just absolutely the, the best thing for, for kids. I haven't read it recently, but I bet it would still hold up. <laughs> What's not to like? <laughs> and is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? I think the book I have reread the most in my life probably is Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose. Like, I'll literally get to the end, wait like a week, and then reread it again. Like, maybe it's not ideal for that quiet rainy day. And literally, sometimes I avoid reading it late at night because, you know, there's so many murders and fights and, and chases. And it's so tense and violent, especially near the end. But um, I just love it. I, I always find something new to, to laugh at or think about when I read it. And I keep thinking, oh, you know, what would I do for secret knowledge, for knowledge that I knew for sure no one else had or that people had been searching for for centuries? I, I think the answer would not be very savory. So 
I think that's why I enjoy that book because I kind of I kind of see myself in a lot of those monks. <laughs> and finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Oh sure. Um, I just finished Ka by John Crowley. Crowley? Crowley. Um, who also wrote one of my favorite books in all the world, uh, which is called Little Big. Um, and Ka is uh, it's mostly told in close third, although there's a human narrator, and the main character is a crow. And it's like Richard Adams' uh, Watership Down. You know, it's very, very much not about the human perspective. It is very convincingly a crow. But also, um, he's, he's an immortal crow who interacts with human history and has uh, these amazing adventures and goes into the lands of the dead, both crow and human, more than once and returns to the lands of the living. And I, I truly, I don't think I've ever read anything like it. And the language is just beautiful and, and poetic. I think this is going to become also a very, very much re-read book. Primi Mohammed, thank you so much for sharing your passion for reading and storytelling with us today. And I'll look forward to inviting you back in years to come with more of your stories. Yes, thank you so, so much for inviting me. I've had such a good chat. Thanks again to my guest, Primi Mohammed, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode. So don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.